Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Episode 153 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Comity is dead. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. Welcome to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. I'm Chris Hahn. Thank you for liking, subscribing, rating, reviewing, telling your friends about your favorite progressive pundit in podcast land, I hope. Um... Lots to talk about today. I got a great guest in a little while, James Henry. He's a professor who knows a lot about Ukraine and international politics. He's fantastic. You're going to really enjoy that interview. Stick around for that. But I have to start with what I started in the cold opening. Comity with a T, not a D. Comity, you know, where people in Congress respect each other is dead. It's gone, right? There is a wing of the Republican Party, let's call them the not-so-serious pundit wing. I, I, I don't know if we even want to call them that. I mean, I'm a pundit. They're just a not-serious wing of the Republican Party that is dehumanizing their political opponents, probably because they don't have any answers to any real issues, so they're just all shock and awe, Right. Uh, I, I bring this up this week because in the wake of three Republican senators joining in for the confirmation vote with the Democrats for Katanji Brown Jackson to become the first black woman to sit on the United States Supreme Court. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, you know, look, I don't think she'd be taken seriously about anything, referred to those senators as supporters of pedophile pedophilia now okay america i i i i i don't know where to start here because it's very easy to dismiss this kind of behavior as just she's a nut and yeah there is a certain part of her that is nutty and shouldn't be taken seriously but i do think we need to take this seriously because there are a certain group of people in this country that take her very seriously, take people like her very seriously. And when they hear her talking about members of Congress as being pedophiles or supporters of pedophilia, it endangers those people. It dehumanizes her political opponents. And in America, that's not how it's supposed to work. And, you know, I I keep coming back to people like Liz Cheney, who I don't agree with. 
but I, 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 I've never felt demonized by Liz Cheney. I've never felt like her politics was visceral in a way that would get people hurt. Uh, you know, we have evidence that this, you know, talk of loose talk by the right, the far extreme QAnon right in this country has led to people taking action. I, I mean, January 6th is a very uh, good example of that. But even the talk of pedophilia, the Pizzagate situation where a man showed up to a pizza place in Georgetown that, you know, somebody on QAnon decided would be the place that uh, Democrats were were bringing children for an underground sex trade in a basement of a pizza place that didn't have a basement. Man showed up with a gun to free those kids that he read about online. So when you have a member of Congress accusing people of being pedophiles, I think that should be taken very seriously because she's dehumanizing the opponent. And if you dehumanize your political opponents, you could do anything to them. If they're not human, well, kill them. I think that's the message that she's sending. And I think it's a dangerous, dangerous message. You know, we could go on and on about how she doesn't really have any answers for her constituents. She doesn't have any policy agenda. She can't really engage in a true debate on issues because she doesn't even understand it. But the shock and all politics that she's doing, demonizing and dehumanizing members of the opposition party and even some members of her own party is dangerous and needs to stop. I I mean, look, I I have been going on right-wing television and right-wing radio for, you know, 12 years now. And I've had some serious debates with some serious people, like people like Monica Crowley, who is in the news a little bit right now, um, was a Trump aide. We used to debate each other twice a week on Fox in my early days at Fox. And we would we would beat each other up on the air, but we would beat each other up with facts and with sound political arguments. She never once demonized me as a person. In fact, just the opposite. And I never did that to her. I, I, I don't like this. And I don't think any of us in this country should be comfortable with what's going on right now. And I think it's incumbent on the leaders of the Republican Party, and and if it happens in the Democratic Party, leaders in the Democratic Party, to call this stuff out and stop it. We saw how quickly, and we talked about this ad nauseum last week, we saw how quickly Kevin McCarthy pulled in Madison Cawthorn after he, you know, suggested that Republicans were engaging in cocaine-fueled sex orgies. I guess orgies, I don't think you need to put sex in front of it. We saw how quickly he reeled him in for that. Well, where's his, you know, where's his discipline for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene calling people pedophiles because of the way they voted in the United States Senate? That's some dangerous stuff. And I think it's on him. I think he owns the actions that arise out of this. I think blood is on his hands should any violence ever come of her comments. And I think it's important that we hold him accountable if that happens. So, I, I mean, it, it's disturbing. It should disturb you. It disturbs me. And it's something that we should be on the lookout for because this is not just something that should be ignored. I know I'm like kind of like, maybe I'm not making sense on it. It shouldn't be ignored. Yes, she's a fool. But there are people who follow that fool. Lots of people who follow that fool. 
And some of them might take her seriously. So we better be careful. And I think the leadership of the Republican Party party needs to reel her in or shut her down. All right, James Henry is going to be joining me. We're going to talk about very serious subjects about Ukraine and Russia and China. It's a very good interview. You're going to love it. And then I'll be back to wrap up the show. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. James Henry is a lawyer, an activist. He is on a variety of boards. He has studied all sorts of global problems. He teaches a seminar on global justice at Yale, and he is my guest right now. James, how are you doing? Oh, it's been a rocky road with the Ukrainian situation. We're watching, uh, you know, basically democracy is under assault. And uh, I've been focusing on the oligarchs and the role that they've played here and what we should do about it. Yeah, I mean, that is that is one of the main things uh, that attracted me to you to have you come on tonight to talk about these oligarchs. Uh, I know you've written books about China and Russia, and you've studied this stuff. Could you just give my audience just a little four one one on you? Uh, you know how you came came to study this field and 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 your background. Yeah, well, to go back to the nineteen seventies, I noticed the fact that there was an awful lot of uh, U.S. currency that was uh, not <laughs> it, it was in circulation. We weren't able to account for it based on uh, regular demand. Uh, and so it turned out that I was one of the first people to study the underground economy in the mm. United States. And then uh, moving offshore, we noticed that there was a lot of uh, lending that had been done to developing countries uh, like Mexico and Venezuela and Argentina that just didn't wind up in the right place. It didn't produce uh, growth. It produced capital flight. And a lot of this money was uh, fueling a huge tidal wave of flight that was coming out of developing countries and ending up... Uh, uh, fueling the growth of what we call the global haven industry. Mm. Back then, there were about uh, 10 to 15 uh, so-called tax havens, financial secrecy jurisdictions, uh, offshore mostly, uh, places like Cayman Islands, and Bahamas, and the Channel Islands, um, and also countries like Switzerland and the UK that you know were very kind to foreign oligarchs that were investing in their markets. So this whole network over time, when I started writing about it in the mid-'80s, uh, was virtually unknown. It was off the, off the books, and nobody had paid attention to it. Um, I ended up uh, going, for example, to the Philippines and finding out that uh, the dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, had basically used the Central Bank of the Philippines as a piggy bank and then borrowed a lot of money in the name of the Philippines and then sent it right offshore to Switzerland to his own private accounts. Right. 
So this this was pretty eye opening. You know that story turned out to uh, be repeated time and again in Brazil and Mexico and South Africa uh, and in the 1990s in Russia, uh, and we're seeing the consequences of that. So you know, basically, the story that I focused on is how the the West has basically uh, been very tolerant of dirty money that's ended up uh, often invested in its real estate or its banks uh, or in art uh, and other uh, investments, and uh, much of it owned by the kleptocrats who basically rip off these countries and take the money abroad. And that's exactly what we've seen uh, with the, with the, the Russian oligarchs who have uh, you know had a pernicious influence not only on Russia politics but also on uh, on our politics. Well, that's a great, great summary of about 35 years of your career, bringing us right to where we are right now, you know, with this conflict in Ukraine, which I know you have a keen interest in. And the way the world appears to be cracking down on these oligarchs who have, as you said, hid their money around the world. Now, do you think that we're doing enough to crack down on them so that they themselves will feel the pressure and perhaps translate that pressure onto Vladimir Putin and other decision makers in Russia? I think this is a good start, uh, you know, that we've seen for the first time sanctions implemented by uh, jurisdictions like Switzerland and the UK, as well as the United States that are going after, you know, some of the more visible oligarchs. Uh, the problem is that we've estimated, and I've done a lot of work with an organization called the Tax Justice Network, which is uh, set out to sort of get rid of uh, offshore havens and, you know, sort of financial secrecy jurisdictions that uh, give these people impunity. Um, you know, we've estimated that uh, Russian capital flight uh, in since the year 2000 has accumulated to nearly $2 trillion in offshore wealth. Wow. Uh, all of it outside of, of, of Russia. Uh, and a lot of it is owned by, you know, a few hundred people. And so, you know, while we've, we've given uh, the, the top 30 or 40 oligarchs that were identified by Alexei Navalny in his list last year, you know, we have, uh, I think that's the main guidepost that the uh, U.S. government and others are, are targeting. But there's quite a few names that are not on that list, and I think the, the whole idea is that we need to significantly uh, expand the activity here and, and be much more aggressive in, in, in doing justice to the fact that there's all this offshore wealth. It's having a pernicious effect. Uh, I mean, the point of it is not just to get uh, pressure to be applied to Putin. Uh, I'm not sure how much uh, impact... Uh, the oligarchs who have left Russia will have in terms of pressuring uh, a Russian president, but uh, the issue is is really you know a lot of for a lot of these oligarchs have had a deleterious effect on uh, Western governments and Western democracies. And mm. A good example is uh, is the uh, you know the case of Donald Trump. Yep, Trump basically is you know he's. I wouldn't describe him as a mole, and I and I don't really think he was a you know sort of <laughs> a, a KGB operative here. What I, I do think is undeniable is that he financed his recovery after the year two thousand basically on foreign money, and a lot of it came from Russian and uh, former Soviet Union uh, oligarchs. Hmm. Um, and so this this is the thing that really uh, you know so in a sense the oligarchs. Uh, 
during the 1990s, we had an opportunity to kind of democratize Russia after right. the fall of the wall in 1990 and 91. Um, kind of that period is really a missed opportunity for us, and that's where we see the rise of the oligarchs in Russia. They then fled the coup with much of the Russian wealth uh, in their pockets, uh, and they created a kind of demand for people like Putin to come in and have a counter-revolution. So this right. whole kind of failed transition in the 90s is something we really need to understand uh, because it kind of set the stage for both Putin and uh, Well, let's, and let's pick on that a little bit, if you don't mind, because I, I do think yeah. that you're 100% right. I've, I, I've thought about this because, you know, I mean, I, I came of a, I was in college when the Berlin Wall fell and I was at, at the time studying uh, U.S.-Soviet Union relations. That was going to be my major and uh, he was very keenly aware of it my entire life. But, you know, obviously, I haven't studied it the way you have. And and I, I don't think many Americans understand because I think we, 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 we were at a place where, you know, the Soviet Union fell. They were our friends. They were buying Coca-Cola and, you know, Mars bars. And, and now they're invading Ukraine, a, a peaceful neighbor. Uh, you know, let alone the fact they've invaded other countries like Chechnya and Georgia in this time, you know, and I don't think most people know how they got from from what they thought was a free country to where they are now. Well, I think what we had were very naive expectations about, uh, you know, kind of long ago and far away. Uh, we thought, you know, that democracy would simply take hold in Russia because of uh, economic reforms because of a free market system and that this would create a demand for democracy um, and that everything would be fine. We could assume that democracy would go side by side with uh, capitalism. And so during the 1990s, we had a choice very early of whether to give Russia a Marshall Plan the way we had given Germany after right. that defeated enemy. And we decided not to. Well, why? Well, both... Uh, Bush won, and Clinton decided that it was, they didn't want to be seen to be aiding the communists. Mm. And uh, so instead, Russia was actually forced to kind of finance its recovery and went through a Great Depression in the 90s uh, by privatizing all of their state-owned companies. Yeah. So you had a, a 150,000 state-owned companies were privatized in Russia, uh, and bought up by a very few people who... Tiny group of people, yeah, 25 people, uh, and for a grand total of $9.3 billion. Wow. Uh, which, they, which they borrowed uh, from the West, from the IMF and the World Bank, to finance these uh, acts. So these oligarchs had the opportunity, financed by the West, to buy 150,000 of state-owned businesses across Russia created this tremendous amount of wealth in the hands of a relatively small amount of people. Yes, exactly. And this was under the uh, Yeltsin, who was our uh, main alternative to, you know, what we thought was the Communist Party threat uh, in the mid-90s. Uh, there's this story where Larry Summers, who was his deputy uh, treasury secretary, was in uh, Davos, and my friend uh, Jeff Sachs went up to him and said, you know, all these oligarchs that are buying up Russia, they're crooks, you know, they're, uh, there's serious theft going on. And he said, uh, uh, Summers said, do you have any proof? Uh, <laughs> so the, the United States, uh, you know, that period was one of uh, naivety on the part of uh, 
many U.S. officials who just basically, either they didn't want to be bothered with it, uh, they or they just thought that the market, the free market system solutions would work. And we ended up basically with this highly concentrated uh, wealth in Russia. And then the next thing that happened, they all wanted to leave because they could see uh, a, a kind of uh, reaction coming. And the right. reaction came in the form of, of Vladimir Putin, who from 1999, 2000, was basically becoming more and more like a, a czar. Um, and, you know, he took time to kind of get rolling, but at, at first we had uh, a sort of naive expectations that he would be a reasonable person and, and we could deal with him. Over time, I think there was an interaction that went on in which he became more and more uh, paranoid about the West and, and sort of talked himself into the idea that we were threatening him and that NATO was going to move West and that, uh, you know, that the absorption of uh, the, the Baltic uh, countries and Poland were uh, bad enough, but then anything beyond that, uh, you know, couldn't be left to the free choice. So we ended up in this, uh, you know, this dance over the last 10 years specifically where uh, Putin has become more and more aggressive, uh, more and more of a hardliner domestically, uh, cracking down on domestic dissent. Uh, and the oligarchs have been out and about. Uh, actually, you know, some of them have been quite active in helping uh, Putin from afar in terms of supporting candidates around the world who are, uh, you know, sort of on his side in this, in this debate. And it's kind of an emerging alliance, I think, on a global level between democracies. And the uh, United States, at best, you know, is struggling to be a democracy, and we're imperfect, but, uh, you know, we've... We're kind of all we've got, but right. there's an alliance that's emerging here to defend, uh, you know, things like a free press, civil liberties, uh, the free elections, and that's the kind of stuff that the Ukraine was starting to believe in and starting to set an example for. It isn't perfect either. It has oligarchs, right? But basically, there's a there's a you know sort of case to be made that uh, uh, I think Putin's motivation here is not just about you know, some part portions of the Donbass, uh, eastern Ukraine. He's very worried about Ukraine setting an example uh, to other Soviet, uh, former Soviet states of a, of, a, of a successful democratic transition like they did not have in Russia in the 90s. So what do you think that leads to, though? I mean, are the Baltics at, at risk? Is Poland at risk? Are other, like, NATO countries that are former Soviet satellites at risk? I think that we should presume, uh, you know, we don't have to give this guy the benefit of the doubt anymore. Right. <laughs> he's, uh, he's kind of beyond that. We probably shouldn't have given him the benefit of the doubt here. Yeah. I mean, Churchill had this comment about Hitler after the Chamberlain episode. He said, basically, uh, for, for operating purposes, we have to assume we cannot negotiate with this guy. He doesn't tell the truth. Right. And he's sort of like a rabid dog. So just to be safe, we have to be on the side of, of saying, you know, he's going to go as far as he can go, and uh, we have to basically try to apply whatever pressure we can. Uh, the good news about it from that standpoint is that we do have a lot of economic clout in the world, and the Western democracies are still at least half of the world economy. Um, we're trying, we got very strong support, I think, at the UN, 141 countries. Uh, denounced the uh, invasion of the Ukraine. I think there were only eight countries that 
didn't, including, you know, giants like uh, Syria and uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela. So, you know, Putin, I think, underestimated the resistance of the, clearly underestimated resistance of the Ukrainian people and his own, and overestimated his own military. But I think he's also underestimated the determination of the West to sort of say, okay, that's enough. Yeah. Uh, I think that you're going to, we're going to say no to this. I think he thought that, you know, you know, Europe would be like, look, we need their cheap gas. There's nothing we could do about it. Let them have Ukraine. And that's just not how it played out. And I think, you know, to some ex- to some extent, you've got to give President Biden credit for that. I would give him a lot of credit. You know, people are critical of what he did in Afghanistan. I think just justly so. But, uh, you know, on this issue, he seems to have been successful in, in terms of uh, stepping up and uh, really kind of organizing. Uh, you know, quite a few different interests in Europe. You know, Germany has... 55% of German uh, energy comes from uh, Russian gas. Right. Uh, you know, it's not easy. They have extraordinary relationships over time with, uh, you know, institutions like Gazprom. And, yeah. You know, they go right to the top of the country uh, uh, in terms of uh, political influence. All right. Any so, case, so this, you know, so that's a problem. Definitely. James, I just want to ask you about China and and the motivation they have. I mean, to me, it appears that China has like one foot in both worlds. They want to be a competitor uh, on the international trade economy stage. Uh, They don't seem to be as violent and aggressive in their, you know, in their foreign policy as Russia is. I don't I don't feel that they're as militaristic, even though they rattle their saber about Taiwan once in a while. Um, I don't understand their motivation for backing Russia at all here because they're not trading with Russia the way they are with the United States and the rest of the West. Well, I think part of this is that you see a division within China right now. This is being uh, debated. And I think uh, Chairman Xi, Xi, who has you know, uh, become more and more authoritarian since he took, uh, took office uh, about a decade ago, um, you know, is in the camp that is kind of using this situation to crack down on domestic dissent to argue that we need a tough line. Um, China has been pretty aggressive in the South China Sea in terms of deploying, you know, new military facilities and has this debate with the rest of uh, South Asia. Um, it's, it's got, uh, it's a mixed situation. They are quite dependent on uh, imported oil. And that's one thing Russia has to offer, uh, as well as Iran. And so, you know, they kind of talk themselves into trying to be, uh, you know, kind of bipolar about this. They, they think that they can continue to sell. They're much more dependent than Russia is on, on uh, exports of sophisticated goods and, you know, electronics and uh, uh, consumer products to the West. And they sort of need those markets, uh, you know, the uh, we saw the devastating effect that U.S. sanctions against uh, the Japanese, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, telephone uh, provider, uh, right? Way, way, way had, and that's uh, that's what they're afraid of here in general. I, I think that they have, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm concerned that China is making uh, the wrong decision here, and basically is figured, trying to figure out, you know. Um, you know, a grand strategy for confronting the West, uh, uh, as if it, uh, you know, was <laughs> it's primarily interested in 
this this axis with Russia. So right. I don't. I think the jury is out. I mean, I would. I think there's. I'm certain that there are people within China that are very critical of the government's policies. Well, well, doesn't doesn't she have it different than Putin? Like, I, I, Putin, it appears, answers to no one in Russia at this point. Doesn't she, though, have to deal with the... I mean, I know he's been more dictatorial of late, but he still has political concerns within his party that he has to deal with. Isn't that correct? He does, and he's, he should be concerned about Chinese growth, which we've already seen slump during the COVID period, around 5% a year. Right. Um, that, he's not going to be able to sustain that if he sees the West beginning to uh, introduce sanctions against China. And that, you know, could well be the end of this. If we see China uh, stepping actively into arming Russia or, you know, sending them uh, other kinds of assistance, I think that they could... You know, that cold growth pattern, which has really been vital for the, uh, you know, the, the experience of, of for the for the stability of the Chinese uh, regime. I, I was I happened to have been in Beijing in May of 1989 during the Tiananmen Square episode uh, in which the Chinese army basically moved in and just crushed people. And so I have no uh you know, illusions about the nature of the Chinese dictatorship, what they're doing with the Uyghurs. And the, yep. You know, there's a horrible uh, kind of level of repression domestically. Um, but uh, there are, are elements within China that are probably right now debating, you know, this this issue and, and arguing that China has no, uh, no need and no reason really to side uh, completely with Putin, and you know, I, I, I would I would expect that side if there if reason prevails, uh, that will win out. And don't you think that time. don't you think that China can actually end this thing completely? Like you know, right now, you know, Russia isn't truly alone as we like to say they are. The Chinese are still trading with them somewhat, like you said, oil, other things. Yeah. I, I think well, the, Chi- I think I, the, the yeah. Chinese could probably shut this whole thing down at some point. It would certainly be a big uh, deal if China decided to actively oppose the, the Ukraine war. But you know, China is very concerned about what we're doing with Taiwan. So they, they're they're looking through this uh, through those through those lenses and are, are concerned about you know where are we headed with the Taiwan situation. So they they don't want to be perceived as being weak here, and uh, and that's a concern. Oddly enough, the, the, the instance of Taiwan would be you know. <laughs> more consistent uh, with with an analysis that says the Ukraine uh, should be left alone uh, but uh, and should not be subjected to, you know, carve-ups of its ter- territory. Right. I think that China would understand uh, that argument. But, uh, you know, we've seen rising tensions. The Biden administration has been quite uh, vocal about uh, switching U.S. defense strategy to to focus on China. So, you know, there, there is a concern that we've sent a lot of signals to China that are pretty hostile. And uh, Well, I mean, like, would be- it's harder for China to go into Taiwan because at any given moment there are American ships in Taiwan. American troops, American sailors are in Taiwan always. I mean, it's, it's since, since Taiwan came into existence, let's say. Um, so I, I mean, it's a, it's a much more difficult maneuver because you are technically going to war with the United States if you attack Taiwan. Yeah, well, that's a 
complicated issue. I mean, we have formally speaking recognized the sovereignty of uh, China with respect to Taiwan. And, you know, since Nixon went to China, that was part of the deal we cut. So uh, China had, you know, sort of expectations that we were, you know, already committed to their one, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> their, their how many systems they want to call it, but uh, one, one country. And, right. Uh, and that's, you know, something that, uh, but, you know, I, I've been to Taiwan. I understand the mentality there. They are, you know, it's, it's an interesting kind of, uh, uh, kind of mixed democracy, I would say. It has a long tradition of kind of rather authoritarian government. And, uh, they go through, uh, you know, uh, uh sort of alternative, uh, governments that are more or less hostile to, to China. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's likely to be in everyone's interest for there to be some kind of uh, peaceful solution to that problem. And, and I don't I'm not sure that this is helping. Yeah, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. But do you yeah. think it's as yeah. imminent? Do you think it's an imminent threat? Because prior to Ukraine, there did seem to be a sense that Taiwan was in imminent danger from China. China was being more aggressive towards Taiwan. They were doing flights over Taiwan that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, you know, but it appears that that imminent threat was more saber rattling than actual plans for war. Well, we don't know. You know, I think that this is something that's, uh, you're, you know, I'm not the, the Taiwan expert here and I would love to hear from uh, a U.S. military perspective on what exactly this the the, the threat is there and what, what we would plan to do about it. Uh, we have maintained, I think, a, a kind of a level of ambiguity about what our response would be right. to China. And that, that has been a kind of strategic decision, uh, you know, so that China would have uncertainty about it. Right. Uh, look, I, I don't think there's any question that if China decided that they needed to conquer Taiwan, but China is a very, Taiwan is a very valuable economic entity for there's a lot of trade and you know semiconductor production and you know there's a tremendous amount of exports from Taiwan to China uh, that would be jeopardized so like, right. I believe that objectively speaking this would not be uh, you know this would be in uh, in anyone's interest and that's what's but, so confusing to a lot of people who don't really understand it I mean it does appear that there's a lot of back and forth between Taiwan and China a lot of you know people who have relatives on both sides of that strait. Uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people don't understand, you know, why China would be so aggressive to them, giving their close ties and their trade relationships. I think China has a history of being really uh, offended by, and probably justifiably so, by the, the whole history, uh, sort of the sad history of Western imperialism in China. Yeah. In the 1840s, when the Brits basically addicted the whole country to opium, and, right? You know, it was legal importing uh, opium from India to sell to the you know, the empire, um, you know, the imperial court. I, this is a, a a very important factor that is influencing not only our discussions with about Russia, but also not only about China, but also about Russia, because. Uh, one of the things that's pretty clear about Putin is that he tends to live in the past. Right. And he has this very uh, romantic view of what Russia and, you know, its 
uh, destiny, kind of its manifest destiny, uh, in the world must be. And he's very resentful of the fact that the West never gives him enough credit. Right. Great sacrifices in World War II and so forth. He doesn't, you know, tend to mention the fact that Stalin actually aligned with Hitler for two years at 1939. Well, it's 441, but you know. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we should build maybe we should build a nice monument to the Russian sacrifice in World War II, and we can end this whole thing. I'm out of time with you. This went by too fast. We only got to talk about one subject. I wanted to talk about a bunch of things. Where could people find you? Well, I have a uh, website called submergingmarkets.com. I'm Publish. I, I, I publish in most places. Uh, you know, I'm often on on Twitter. I, you can follow me on Twitter. Submerging Markets uh, is my handle. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm an editor of uh, the American Interest Magazine, which is kind of an independent intellectual magazine. In well, that's the US. that's good stuff. Well, look, Doc, James Henry, it was great having you. We'll get you back here soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Very interesting stuff. He had a lot of knowledge about really how these oligarchs even came to be. I mean, I think most people don't really realize just it was lazy foreign policy after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism. I don't know what else to say about it. That's really what it sounds like to me, right? Lazy foreign policy. Like, oh, this is the easy way to to deal with it we should have we should have had a Marshall plan but this country didn't really have it didn't have the desire to do that and neither did the rest of the West they were just like yay the Berlin Wall's down and the Russians want to be our friends now and let's just let people steal everything and who cares it's up to them to figure it out and people stole everything it's a kleptocracy is really what it is it's not a I mean, it, it, you know, it's without a doubt a dictatorship at this point, but it is a kleptocracy. There were just a few people who took off with everything, financed by us. And it's sickening. It should make you sick. It makes me sick. Um, and it's why we're in the situation we're in right now, over there. Now, I don't know if democracy would have taken hold. We see how fragile it is. We see it's fragile here. People here don't even think it's worth it in some cases. But... I think it would have if given the opportunity, just like it's doing now in Ukraine or it was before Russian tanks rolled through it. So, well, anyway, let's let's end on a high note, right? It's spring. We're finally starting to see spring weather here in New York. Um, 
and um, and around the country. It's Easter, Passover. If you don't celebrate, just enjoy the weekend. <laughs> um, I I think it's time for rebirth, right? All we're going to hear the next couple of weeks is talk about inflation. Talk about, oh, why can't we drill more oil? You know, get inflation under control. We're going to hear all the bad things going on in this country. But I don't know. There's a lot of people working today that weren't working when Joe Biden became president. He deserves some credit for that, right? I would think, I mean, if the former guy was still in office, he'd be having a press conference every time the jobs report came out touting his accomplishments as president. I think Joe Biden's done a pretty good job as president. I think he gets some credit for what's going on. And now that spring's here and we're starting to get outside, and even though there is a, definitely a COVID variant going around, I don't know about you, but I'm planning on getting boosted this week. It's, it's a, you know, it's time for us to start talking about the good things that are happening under Biden and stop letting the right dominate the conversation, which they do, right? They dominate. They started on Fox News or in the conservative echo chamber. It works its way into the mainstream media no matter what. And yes, inflation is real and people are feeling it. The president has very little control over it, but it is his problem. And it's all of our problems to start, you know, fighting, fighting, you know, fighting the misinformation about it. They're trying to blame Joe Biden's energy policy on this, which nothing could be further from the truth. As I've said dozens of times on this show, there is no shortage of oil in the world. There is a skittish market that is, you know, justifiably concerned about what's going on in Ukraine. But, you know, it's been about six weeks now. Maybe it's time to be less concerned. And start, you know, dealing with the supply and demand, which is really what markets are supposed to be dealing with, not speculation about what might happen. But it's spring. Get outside. Walk your dog or your cat or just yourself. Enjoy the warm weather. Enjoy what you have. And truly, truly, truly believe that things can keep getting better. So with that, I want to remind you now, as I always do, to seek the truth question everyone and everything even me seek the truth I know it's out there and i know you'll find it if you look for it and i'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as i see it i'm chris Hahn. thanks for listening to the aggressive progressive podcast Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.